You know, I didn't, I didn't know we were taking a survey of, of my black shirt this morning, but the survey's in. It's Gary Player. I don't have enough jail for a mega pastor, okay? So uh, that's, that's what I just heard. So I <clears throat> thought y'all would like to know what survey resulted in. Um, this morning we're looking at 2 Samuel, if you have your Bible, chapter 4. And it's an interesting chapter. Let me just read the first verse and then I'll work you through it. 2 Samuel chapter 4 says, Now when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage and all Israel was disturbed. Okay, what we've got here is a tragic death. And it's the death of a, the leader of a nation, really. Abner, of course, was Saul's commander. He was the experienced leader, power, influence that came to Ishbosheth after Saul died, Jonathan died, other two sons died, Ishbosheth at home, he's the son also of Saul, and Cap- Captain Abner is the one who knocks on the door and says, You're my king. And Ishbosheth saying, Uh, what? What just happened? How did I become king? I mean, that's not in the cards, that's not in my dreams. It's gonna be my dad or Jonathan or my other two brothers, I'm way down the line, not me. Abner says, no, you're the man. Everybody else is dead. And Abner, everybody knew when Ishbosheth got put on the throne that Abner was really the man. He was, he was the power. He was the influence. He was the, the one with the experience, and he's now dead. He was assassinated. We saw that last week in chapter 3, verse 27, Joab kind of caught him by surprise, pulled out the dagger, and just ran him through while they were shaking hands and chatting. So, assassination of national leader. And the whole nation is disturbed. In in America, we've endured the assassination of four sitting presidents. Abraham Lincoln was the first, 16th president, all by gunshot. Uh, James Garfield was the next. He was our 20th president. William McKinley, after him, our 25th president. And some of you here, you remember our fourth, and that was um, John F. Kennedy. When you read this passage, I want you to feel if you were alive when Kennedy was assassinated, you, you, you hear what's going on here. When Abner had died in Hebron, he he lost, uh, Ishbosheth, he lost courage. And all Israel was disturbed. November 22nd, 1963, if you were alive then, you were disturbed. Everything went blank, so to speak. Via television, every station was reporting our president had just been shot twice once in the neck, once in the head. And we wondered, is, is he going to pull through? He was pronounced dead at the hospital. Two hours and eight minutes later, Lyndon B. Johnson was sworn into office. And we're like, what just happened? We're not the same. Who are we now as a nation? How will we endure? How will we go forward with, with a new God that... We didn't barely know his name because Kennedy was so popular. And that's what 
Israel has experienced here this, this tragic death, the loss of the power, the influence, the leadership of a nation. How are they going to go on? And I want us to see um, how God gives us this, this text to, to encourage and strengthen us for times when we're, we're really disturbed and, and we just don't see how we're going to make it forward. Well, verse 2, Saul's son had two men who were commanders of bands. The name of one was Bana, the name of the other, Rechab, the son of Rimon, the Berathite of the sons of Benjamin, for a Berathite is also considered part of Benjamin. And the Berathites fled to Gidom and have been aliens there until this day. Now, what I want you to see is the leader's dead. Ishbosheth, of course, still on the throne, but his captain, the real influence, is dead. Ishbosheth is afraid, scared to death. The nation's disturbed. Two men, two commanders, they have a plan. The name's Bana and Rechab. And they say, what an opportunity. They want to take advantage of this disturbance, this time of weakness, this time where people are afraid. And we're introduced to them. They have this plan. They're going to go kill Ishbosheth and give the head of Ishbosheth to David. That's where we're headed. But, so we're introduced to these two captains who have a plan. But before we get there, it's like, again, God says, I want to interrupt this program for a special bulletin. And he stops and backs up and gives us verse 4. Now, Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took, uh, took him up and fled. And it happened that in her hurry to flee, he fell. I wonder there, did he fall or was he dropped? I mean, the fact that they... They tell us she was in a hurry and he fell. She was in a hurry. He fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now why are we told that? We got this interrupted story because there's another possibility for a king. If Ishbosheth is too weak and afraid, there's another heir. That's Mephibosheth. Did y'all forget about Mephibosheth? He said, no, 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 let me introduce you to Mephibosheth. But see, the problem here is Mephibosheth is only five years old. And he was dropped or fell or did something, and, and he's crippled. So he's too young, and he's lame. How can he be a replacement for this powerful Abner? So you have two options. You've got a son who is too weak and afraid, or one too young and crippled as heir to the throne. So the nation still is disturbed. What are we going to do? Abner has died. Abner is, you know, this, this powerful individual. It's like cutting off the head of a snake. You, you wonder, did I cut it close enough to the head that I really got it? Or will it grow a tail and come back? And as they've killed uh, Abner, they wonder, you know, What's going to happen now? Who's going to, who's going to jump into this position and be strong and be a leader? Well, it's not going to be Ishbosheth, and it's not going to be Mephibosheth. One's too weak and scared, and one's too uh, young and crippled. So where are we going to go from there? Well, you got these commanders. We got a plan, and we get back to them, verse 5. So the sons of Rimmon, 
the Berthite, Rechab, and Bana departed, and they came to the house of Ishbosheth in the heat of the day while he was taking his midday rest. He was just taking a nap. They came to the middle of the house as if to get wheat. See, that wouldn't be strange because they're commanders. They go to, to the king's house to, to get food for the troops. So nothing suspicious. They struck him in the belly, and Rechab and Bana, his, his brother, escaped. Now, when they came into the house, as he was lying on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and killed him and beheaded him, and they took his head and traveled by way of Arabah all night. All right, so they've killed Ishbosheth. He's the one old enough to be king. They didn't worry with Mephibosheth. He's so young and crippled, nobody's really even thinking of him except to acknowledge he would be an heir. They kill Ishbosheth. They cut off his head. They take it to David. Now, let's stop and think about what just went on in these, these first seven verses. Do you, do you ever feel like screaming? That's just not fair. Everything we've just read has been presented to us as unfair treatment. It just isn't fair. It shouldn't have happened. We began with verse 1 with, with Ishbosheth being king, and he's like, Why are you knocking on my door? Why do I have to be king? It was supposed to be Jonathan or my other two brothers. It was never in my dreams to be king. I'm not fit to be king. I can't be king. I have no clue. I've never thought about being king. And Abner's there. I got this. You're king. I'll take care of you. I'll, I'll help you. I'll show you the ropes. So it's like, okay. And then Abner dies. Well, that's not fair. He told me he was going to be here. He was going to do this with me. That, that, that doesn't work that way. I can't do this. I'm afraid. I don't know what to do. The whole nation's disturbed. Just not fair for me to be in this predicament. And how many of us, I mean, your heart kind of sunk when you hear the story of Mephibosheth. That's not fair. I mean, a little five-year-old, he's absolutely doing nothing wrong. His... Dad gets killed in war, and his nanny picks him up and said, we got to get out of here. People will want your life too. And she's running, trying to save him, and somehow he falls, and he's lame for the rest of his life, and he was doing nothing wrong. That, that's not fair. You know, we don't like hearing stories like that. And then there's these two guys with a plan, and their plan is to cut off the head of Ishbosheth. While he's taking a nap, not even giving him a chance to fight or to explain or to say, look, I won't cause any problem. I don't want to be king anyway. But they just go in and stab him and cut off his head. That's not fair. There's one story after another that just gets us. So many times, if you've, if you've ever played golf with me, you've seen me when I get frustrated, you know, I hit this sweetest, most solid, straightest ball I've ever hit in the world, and I just stand back in awe. This is so good. And then it lands in somebody else's divot and bounces off a rock and falls in a pond. And I'm going, ah! 
that's not fair. I should be rewarded for good stuff. Do you ever feel that way? And it can get a lot more serious than that, can't it? When you have a spouse come home to you and say, I know we've been married 20 years, but I love him or her more than I love you. And I want a divorce. And you say, that's not fair. Or you spend, as a mother, all of that time enduring pregnancy for a stillborn child. You say, that's not fair. Or one of your children gets a lifelong disease or is crippled or is deformed and you scream, that's not fair. Or somebody crosses the median or runs a stop sign and hits you and you weren't doing anything wrong and now you have to live with pain for the rest of your life that you didn't do anything to cause and it's just not fair. Or your boss says, we've got to downsize and your job's got to go and you say, that's not fair. I mean, there's just experience after experience after experience like this that you and I have to live with. And I think perhaps God has given us these experiences in succession to just perhaps remind us that we always, always, always need a Savior. And we always need someone to deliver. And we always need someone to help. And we always need someone to come alongside. And we always need someone to transform us and to get us from where we are to where we need to go. And that is Jesus. That's God. God reveals these life experiences to always be pointing us back to him. That we have a God whose ways are not the same as our ways and his thoughts are not the same as our thoughts. So if these experiences get you there, then that's exactly why I think God has given us these texts and these experiences to consider. Well, let's move on. Verse 8, 2 Samuel verse 4. Then, it says, they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life, thus the Lord has given my lord, the king, vengeance this day on Saul and his descendants. Now, Rechab and Bana seem so proud in their words to share this story. And they're sharing a story. First of all, they hold up the head of Ishbosheth, and there's absolutely no dispute. Here, here's Ishbosheth, and it's like David's like, I know that. They were, they were friends. David knew he had been in the same house with Ishbosheth, he knew who he was. So there's no dispute on who they have, whose head is before him. The dispute is going to be over what they consider the rationale for why he's. His head is there. And they are saying, Behold, look, Ishbosheth, he's your enemy. David's probably thinking, When did he become my enemy? I've never been fighting Saul or his sons. I love that, that family. But anyway, this is your enemy. And then they say, Not only is he your enemy, but God wanted to take vengeance out on your enemy. And he, lo and behold, he uses us. We're the ones who God sent to cut off his head so you can be free to be the king over all Israel. Now, 
Here's a principle. We're going to see David, David doesn't agree with that at all, and we'll get there. You don't have to read further to get there. I mean, you know something's wrong with this story. And this is the principle. You don't ever break God's law to keep God's law. I mean, that, that doesn't make sense. They broke God's law and that they committed murder. They weren't executing vengeance on Ishbosheth. There was no command that they needed to go get him and kill him. They just did it secretively, and they secretively run. They, they know there's something wrong with this picture, or they wouldn't be running all, as fast as they can all night. They know something's wrong. They've broken God's law. They've committed murder, and now they're using their breaking of the law as a rationale for what they did. Do we ever do that? Do we ever use God's law as rationale for why we have to do what we have to do? These guys were using it, and as I stopped to think about that question, how often do we use God to rationalize our sins? We'll say, well, how about the commandment not to steal? We'll say, God has promised to provide for me. And lo and behold, there's exactly what I need right there. So you just reach out and grab it. Well, wasn't that stealing? No, no, it wasn't stealing. I was asking God to provide. Look, there it is. But it belongs to somebody else. Yeah, but there it is. And sometimes we will take things. Somebody's stuff, even off the internet. It's like, look, just what I needed. There it is. And we take it. And we claim that it's you know, God, look, behold, God has provided. We broke God's law, claiming God approves because he is our provider. Or we say, God has promised me happiness, right? And I just, I can't be happy in this marriage anymore. I would be happier in that marriage over there or in other marriage. And so we use God's desire for our happiness as rationale to break this command called don't commit adultery and fornication, breaking your marriage vows. We use God's law to break God's law. And we think, oh, that's okay. That's right, correct? And, you know, we go at it. Um, how many people do you hear say, well, you know, well, they say it around me because I'm the preacher. Oh, excuse, excuse me for cursing, preacher. You know, but, and I look at them like, why did you do that? And so they give me rationale. Well, you know, excuse me, but I had to do it. They wouldn't pay attention if I didn't do it. Oh, that makes it okay. God somehow has this uh, overarching a plan that people have to pay attention to you, and so to get people to pay attention, you have to break his law, and so he's okay with that. And we think, well, yeah, really? Where did you learn this principle? It's okay to break God's law, to keep God's law. I don't see that principle anywhere in Scripture, or, you know, so many people, oh, I'd, I guess you saw the Powerball winner. Wasn't it 700 million? I'll give my tithe, Lord, as soon as as soon as I win the Powerball, I mean, you, hadn't, you haven't given me my lottery ticket yet, or whatever. You know, it's like, 
got to have one thing before I can have another, and it's, it's, it's breaking God's law. Or one of the biggest on Sunday is our kids learn it from the littlest age. Well, I heard it was the day of rest in the Scripture. And I just wouldn't get any rest if I had to get up and go to church. I get a lot more rest if I just stay home. Especially because there was a late night game last night, and I need my rest. It's a day of rest, so I got to stay home and rest. So we use God's law against God's law over and over and over. And that's what Rechab and Bana had decided was okay. You got any doubts about your morality? Just ask a believer. You can even ask your kids. Most people can spot hypocrisy real quick. You say you're a keeper of God's law. Ask somebody, you think I'm keeping God's law right here? They can spot it pretty quick. No, you're breaking God's law. You're using it as rationale, claiming you're keeping God's law, but you're not. It seems really hypocritical there. And God presents to us the hypocrisy of these two men thinking they were doing the good thing trying to justify the good thing of course i think they were probably looking for some posh government job you know if we if we go take david the head of hishbosheth then he will he will have to reward us because we've killed his last enemy and he 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 will give us some great position in his leadership because we've proven ourselves to be so so smart instead of that David executes justice. Look at verses 9 through 12. David answered Rechab and Bana, his brother, sons of Rimon, the Berethite, and said to, to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress. Now, don't skip over that. It's quite a statement. He says, okay, let, let me tell you what I think about you guys. First of all, let me start with gratitude to God. God is my provider. God is my protector. God is my redeemer. He is the one who delivers me from distress. Not Bana, not Rechab. You need to get this much straight. I don't need you to go to war for me. Christ is my redeemer. He is the one who takes care of my stress in life. And don't come in here saying, you handled it for me. Because I don't look to people like you to handle it for me. I look to the Lord. And that's what the Lord does for me over and over and over and over again. It's a great principle to understand when you start your day. When you say, God's, I'm, God, I'm content with you. I'm, you're, my, you're my deliverer. You're my redeemer. You're going to take my stress today. I don't need to work some plan, and I don't need somebody else to work some plan to take care of that. You're going to take care of that. Let me give you another passage. Look at Psalm 131, just a three-verse psalm. I love it. I probably will preach on it later maybe this year, just because it's such a powerful statement of David. This is David in his right in this time frame in 2 Samuel. Psalm 131, David says this, O Lord, my heart is not proud nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I've composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rest against his mother. My soul's like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Now what's he saying? He's saying, 
I don't involve myself in whether I'm king now or later. He's been very patient waiting for the kingdom God's promise. I don't push myself up into that position. God promised me that I would be king. I let God get me there. I just do the next thing that he's commanded me to do. I don't try to, to win God's promises or get my, work myself into them. You know, we, we have this phrase, seize the day. Maybe, maybe a better motto instead of seize the day would be receive the day. The day is a gift from God. To be content to, to receive the gift instead of saying, I got to go get it. I got to do it. But just like David says, David says, I'm, I'm like a, a, a weaned child resting in his mother's arm, waiting for food, waiting for protection, waiting for direction. He says, I see myself that way with God. I just, I just wait for God to provide, to lead, to take care of me. I don't go out there and, and, and fight my own battles. God has promised certain things, and I, and I wait for that. I mean, this is something Bon and Rekha, they didn't have any clue about, obviously. And sometimes we miss it, too. I'm frequently asked, you know, how did you, how did you sleep last night? How did y'all sleep last night? You know, what's your answer to that? I mean, you, you can grumble and complain. Ah, it was miserable. I didn't get but five hours of sleep. I didn't get but two hours of sleep. I mean, you can go on and on and on about all the problems you had sleeping. And, of course, there's things you can do as far as eating the right things, drinking the right things, getting the exercise and all that stuff. Not going there. But still, no matter what you do, sleep is a gift. You don't create it. Your body sleeps at some point. God gives you sleep. Sometimes he doesn't give you sleep. What if we lowered our expectations and said, sleep is a gift, is something that my creator gives to me at certain times. And what if we said, God, I'm going to receive the gift of sleep, whatever amount you give me. You can give me, some of you say, I really need nine hours. Okay. He can get, choose to give you nine or not. Or I need eight, or I need seven, or I need six, or I need five. Whichever one of those people you are, fine. But God gives you what he wants to give you. So I ask you the question tomorrow morning, how'd you sleep? And the answer, I think, the right answer is, I slept as good as God allows. If you've done everything else, as far as eating the right stuff, drinking the right stuff, getting the right exercise and all that, then you slept as good as God allowed. Because God is the creator of sleep. And that's what he gave you. And that's kind of the picture of David here in Psalm 131. He says, I just take what God gives me. And I get real content with that. So back in 2 Samuel, Rechab and Bana come in. Behold, we've handled all your problems. David says, stop right there. You do not handle all my problems. God handles all my problems. And I'm very content with that. He is my redeemer. He's the one who takes all of my stress. I've seen it over and over and over. How God delivers me. And so he starts by praise. He starts with gratitude in his discussion. Let me just say, I am thankful to God, not thankful to you. I praise God, not here to praise you. You've done something really bad. You didn't execute the vengeance of God on Ishbosheth. You didn't, you didn't put vengeance on Ishbosheth. 
You did him a great disservice. While he was asleep, taking a nap, really? You just went in and stabbed him? And then cut off his head. Well, he begins to describe it to him. Verse 10, when one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him, I killed him in Ziglag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. You remember that? Somebody ran from the, the, uh, the war and said, Saul's dead. He said, well, who, who told you Saul was dead? I said, well, I didn't need anybody to tell him. Why not? Because I killed him. Well, we know that guy was lying. But David said, you think that's good news? That's not good news. Kill him. He kills him for lying. He kills him for, again, seeking this posh reward. And David brings that back up to Rechab and Bana. He says, verse 11, how much more when, those, when wicked men, talking about those two, wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I not require his blood from your hand and destroy you from the earth? That's David's way of saying, that was just disgusting can't believe you did it verse 12 then David commanded the young men and they killed them and they cut off their hands and feet and they hung them up beside the pool in Hebron but they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the grave of Abner in Hebron it shows great respect for Ishbosheth but these two captains who have killed Ishbosheth cuts off their hands their feet hangs them out for public display because David wants to make a statement here. He wants to guard against fake news hurting his reputation. He wants everybody to know, I had nothing to do with this. Ishbosheth was a righteous man, an innocent man. It wasn't fair all the things that happened to him. Right? Rechab and um, Bana killed him. I didn't put him up to it. I wasn't trying to take the throne. I'll let God give me the throne when he wants the throne. I'm innocent of this, and I want the world to see it. What, what we see there is David, who's becoming the king, we'll see in the next chapter, over all of Israel. We see him starting his leadership as king as a man of integrity, as a man who's committed to justice, as a man who's committed to righteousness. And it points us, since Christ comes from the line of David, it points us to Christ, whose kingdom is a kingdom where he says, love justice and mercy and righteousness. This is how I want you to walk. So if you're one of those people where, you know, your boss has stolen your money, and, you know, it's just not fair. Or your spouse has stolen faithfulness in your marriage. Or you've been abused as a kid. I mean, it goes on and on and on, this unfair treatment. Here we have a, a passage that says, remember, we have a God who is righteous. Who gets disgusted when these kind of things happen to you. And at some point... We have a God who will right all wrongs and will take care of his people and set the kingdom straight. If, if you follow the big blocks here in 2 Samuel chapter 2, you've got uh, Joab, uh, you've got Abner killing, then you have Joab killing, then you have Rechab and Bana killing. 
as you, as you think about it, no, no power like Abner overcomes the kingdom of God. No power like Joab, nor folly, really, like Joab overcomes the kingdom of God. No disgusting breaking of the law like Rechab and Jonab overcomes the kingdom of God. Christ can be trusted to right the wrongs and to establish his church, his kingdom, his people in righteousness. What a comfort we have a God like that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for revealing your love, your disgust, and your righteousness in 2 Samuel 4. Father, help us to see our need of a God like that, a God who we can depend upon to deliver us from all distress, a God that can right the wrongs, and there's so many of them in this world. Father, we ask that you would grant us your mercy, that you would draw us to yourself, that we would be refreshed knowing we've got a God like you. We thank you for the way you love us and your forgiveness of sin. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.